I am extremely happy to be with you in New York today for our 10th Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon, the first one to be held in the US. Ever loyal to Gabrielle Chanel and Karl Lagerfeld's love of literature, the House of Chanel, together with Virginie Viard, artistic director of fashion collections, and myself, have created these opportunities to celebrate literature and art. These encounters provide a rare opportunity to welcome female writers, artists and actresses to read, discuss and share their unique perspectives on their own work or that of historical or contemporary literary figures who have inspired them. Tonight, we are thrilled to welcome the writer Siri Utved and discuss her work alongside writers Rachel Eliza Griffith and Erica Wagner. Siri, you are the author of a poetry collection, multiple novels, and prestigious award-winning essays. It is difficult, and you'll understand why, and very difficult to summarize your work in only a few lines. So prolific it is, not to mention the many subjects, universes, and emotions it spans. You are passionate about so many topics, about neuroscience, psychology, psychoanalysis, psychiatry, literature, philosophy, sociology, anthropology, ethnography, painting, cinema, poetry, music. It's like the list is endless. Um, this curiosity of yours brings you to approach things from a different angle, shifting borders between disciplines and putting into question our manner of classification, challenging the tendency to constrain beings and their behaviors in reductive schemes or in abstract categories. In your research, you question the ambivalence of our relationship to motherhood, suffering, mental health, body shaming in Western culture, the sexist prejudice that persists when a woman is in a position of power, whether it be in creative or academic fields and many other burning topics agitating our society today. Each book of yours starts from a very intimate experience, exploring the obscure depth of the psyche with the rigor of a scientist, the sincerity of an artist, and the ear of a psychoanalyst. If there, if there is a way of characterizing you, it is by your generosity, your open mind, your passion to understand, and the act of transmission that seemingly guides each and every one of your steps as opposed to the desire to maintain objective and immutable truths. Thank you so much, Charlotte. And I am delighted to be here in my native city of New York to host this wonderful event with Chanel, part of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon. As Charlotte has said, it's an honor to be here to celebrate Siri Hustvet, whose work astonishes us delights us, moves us, and perhaps most importantly, challenges us and makes us think. Siri is a New Yorker too, the one who came here from Minnesota a few years ago now. No doubt we'll discuss what being a New Yorker means to her these days. Her first novel, The Blindfold, was published in 1992 and set out her stall 
It is a novel with multiple perspectives, multiple ways of seeing the world, and Siri has delighted in polyphony from that day to this. She is the author now of seven novels, including What I Loved, The Blazing World, and most recently, Memories of the Future. Her essay collections include A Woman Looking at Men, Looking at Women, and Mothers, Fathers, and Others. They are stunningly wide-ranging, considering literature, visual art, psychology, and psychoanalysis, feminism. I could go on, but I won't, so we can hear from Siri herself. I will add, however, that her memoir, The Shaking Woman or A History of My Nerves, is a valuable addition to the canon of philosophical and scientific autobiography. Like no other book I know, it invites the reader to consider the role of the self in the world. It is emblematic of her broader fascination with what it means to be an individual. This fascination is the engine behind a body of work that has extraordinary breadth and depth. She has studied linguistics and neurology, making her that rare creature, an intellectual equally at home in the sciences and the arts. Since 2015, she has been a lecturer in psychiatry at the DeWitt Wallace Institute for the History of Psychiatry, Department of Psychiatry, Weill Medical School of Cornell University. She is a recipient of the Gabaron International Award for Thought and Humanities. In 2019, she was honored with the Princess of Asturias Award in Literature. These are but a few of many honors, but most importantly, she's just wonderful to talk to. And I will say it again, we are thrilled to have her here with us today. I am also delighted to introduce Rachel Eliza Griffiths, who will be reading extracts of Siri's work and taking part in our conversation. Eliza is a poet, a visual artist, and a novelist. I'm so excited to read her novel, Promise, which will be published in July, and which has been described by Marlon James as both magical and magnificent. Her recent hybrid collection, of poetry and photography, Seeing the Body, was selected as the winner of the 2021 Hurston Wright Foundation Award in Poetry, the winner of the 2020 Patterson Poetry Prize, and it was a finalist for the 2021 NAACP Image Award. She's also a recipient of fellowships from many organizations, including Cave Canem Foundation, Kimbilio, the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, and Yaddo. Her work has been published in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Tin House, and other publications. I'm so thrilled she can be here. But before we begin, let's have another round of applause for Siri. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm going to start with a question for you, Siri. As Charlotte and I both have said, you are such a prolific author, and your work is very various. You write in so many forms, on so many subjects. What are the origins of this boundless curiosity? 
You know, I've often asked myself, what is the source of, of human curiosity? You know, you see it in, in dogs, right? <laughs> you, let, you let a dog out of the car when you take a trip, and the dog goes and, and forages and sniffs everywhere. I think this is uh, uh, something, this is a mammalian business, right? We share this with other creatures. And what we have, right, that other creatures don't, is a reflective self-consciousness, an ability to see ourselves as other people, um, able to use many, many different languages. And that, I think, creates a, another form of curiosity uh, and dissatisfaction. So you have to have a curiosity, but then you're, you sniff around and you're not satisfied. And that leads you somewhere else uh, to another book or another discipline that's taken on the same question, but in a different way. Fascinating. Charlotte, what were some of your thoughts in returning to Siri's work? What was it like for you to look over this body of work as a whole? Well, I was so surprised to see the freedom in which she can go from one subject to the other and, and combine so many different perspectives. And that's, that's a real talent, to be able to combine neurosciences and literature and psychoanalysis, poetry, and, and do it in a, such a natural way. And, and for me, it was a real relief to, no, but really, because I, I studied a lot of philosophy and I never allowed myself that freedom of being able to make something personal and emotional, uh, even if it's um, you know, very scientific or if you're writing a, an essay even for university. And, and somehow it opened up a door for me that we can uh, be more free in that sense. And also I was impressed by her constant attention to the singularity of each story, of each situation, and that capacity to go from the extremely singular and personal to something more universal, and then going back again to that singular experience. And it's that back and forth movement uh, that I find extremely interesting and that flexibility. Uh, and maybe it comes also from that boundless curiosity you have, which somehow I see it like gymnastics, that it will somehow stimulate a certain kind of flexibility. But when you combine all this, you have like such a strong uh, uh, general flexibility that, that Siri has in, in an exceptional way. Eliza, you're an artist who works in different forms and different media. And to me, I see a connection with Siri's work because of that. So how do you think about Siri's work? One of the many things I love about Siri's work is that she explodes our expectations of, of narrative and how narratives are made and who is narrating um, stories about women's lives, about our psychological selves. She kind of unpacks history and memory and sensuality in the body 
always questioning the body, always questioning who is looking at that body, who is claiming that body. And I feel her, her rigor, um, her discontent, as she mentioned in the sniffing, um, her discontent um, becomes a rich space for her readers and for other thinkers and philosophers. And so there's something indomitable about her spirit and there is her generosity. And I do think that is um, a rare combination in a mind and in a life. So I, I very much admire that about Siri, amongst many other things. I'm not going to be able to get through this. <laughs> You're just going to have to keep listening to us. I'm going to say wonderful things about yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's a hard road very, to hoe. Very, very pleasurable and embarrassing at the same time. <laughs> well, you are going to be able to hear, too, um, as I said, some of Siri's work. For our first reading, we'll hear a little extract from her most recent novel, Memories of the Future. In reviewing it in 2019, the Washington Post called it wonderful, noting, few contemporary writers are as satisfying and stimulating to read as Siri Hustvedt. Her sentences dance with the elation of a brilliant intellect romping through a playground of ideas, and her prose is just as lively when engaged in the development of characters and story. It is a layered text as its protagonist, S.H., looks back on the time, the late 1970s, when she moved from Minnesota to make a life in New York City. The present day is interleaved with her journals from the past, with an unfinished novel, to make compelling text that reveals how an identity is made in layers, and how the events of our past endlessly reverberate in the present. It is a novel, too, about female identity that speaks to the Me Too movement with incisiveness and humor. The heroine of the book herself is a novelist. Here are some thoughts about what it means to write books, to create, or try to create, at least, enduring literature. Eliza. We all suffer and we all die. But you, the person who is reading this book right now, you are not dead yet. I may be dead, but you are not. You are breathing in and out as you read, and if you pause and place your hand on your chest, you will feel your heart beating, and there must be light in the room where you are, a light from a window or a lamp or a screen that illuminates the page and, the, and part of your body as you read. Doors have been opening and closing, and memories have been coming and going, and would-be heroes have left one story after the other. The mysterious limping gentleman arrived in Bath long ago, but the MLG may be worth following, even if it turns out he's the wrong man. Life inside and outside novels is crowded with wrong men and women, one misleading character after another, whose wooden legs, eye patches, crutches, scars, beards, and spectacles may or may not be part of a disguise. But a man or woman doesn't need a wig or a false nose to deceive. 
he or she can do it just as ably with a smile or placating words or a friendly manner. We are still following several persons who may or may not have keys to the story. When I listen, I can hear their footsteps in the streets of the city I imagine as I write and you read. To write a book is, for all the world, like humming a song or whistling a tune or striding down the street, skipping a little, and then breaking into a run before returning to a saunter. The most important thing of all is to keep time. Thank you so much. Siri, I mentioned Me Too in my little introduction to that extract. How did the growth of that movement make you reflect on your own past, and how did it affect the <clears throat> it, writing of this yeah, novel? It, it was funny because the whole Me Too business exploded when I was pretty late in writing the novel. So that there is at the very center of the book a, a, a sexual assault, and that had already happened. And then I thought to myself, Finally, you've written a topical book. <laughs> it didn't really turn out that way. I mean, it, it was hardly mentioned. I guess it's because it's not really conventional or it didn't take up the Me Too movement in the way that it usually is. But I had my one moment of thinking I was going to be in. <laughs> well, but I think... Seriously, the most important aspect of that, which is still going on, I don't think of it as finished, even though media often talk about it that way, that there was a contextual movement, a shift in the social values around molestation, assault, um, grabbing, whistling. You know, when I was a young woman, and this, the Memories of the Future is essentially a dialogue between an older narrator and the younger person, it was just business as usual, fending off, you know, aggressive men here and there. And it never entered one's mind to report it unless, you know, there was real blood and guts and, and rape involved. And I think that shifted. If a man is massaging your leg under the table, that happened a couple of times to me long ago. And it is now, I think, acceptable to say, if you don't take your hand off my knee in this circle of people, I'm, you know, I'm going to ask you to get out of here. Um, but that wasn't the case. There was really no social outlet. I think this is changing, and that's a very good thing. Now, Me Too, it was often centered on famous, beautiful actresses with money. And I would think I also worked as a waitress for, you know, in my young days to make money. And restaurants were places of hierarchy where men would, 
use their power, however small it was. Exercise to, their power. Yes, to make sexual advances on the underlings. This is still true. And I think we have to, you know, keep talking about these hierarchies, you know, of gender, race, and class that are ongoing. And I think, to me, one of the wonderful things about the novel is it deals with this also with great humor as well. There is a lightness in it yes. in reflecting between the past and the present. She's saved by witches. <laughs> how, Charlotte, how does this extract speak to your feelings about literature and the possibilities literature offers us as readers? So many possibilities. First of all, it's the possibility to transcend time. And just the fact of saying, you know, I'm the writer's present is in connection with the reader's present, although there can be hundreds of years separating the two. And it seems very banal, but it's incredible. And just the fact that you stress out the bodily sensations of thinking of the reader, how he will be sitting and feeling sensations, we realize how that connection uh, that kind of abolishes chronology. And that's one of the great powers of literature. What I like in that passage is also the, the fact that the reader is creative and is part of the process and has a vision as well. And the relationship between the reader and the writer is every time unique and, and is every time a new story. Yeah. And, and that's something you always um, kind of stress, that, that connection and that unique connection uh, for each person. And I really like also that it's something that you cannot put into words and that is a felt meaning that's very mysterious and at some point it will hit an emotional chord and that's, yeah. You know, reading is still a mysterious business, what actually happens to us, but the rhythm of the prose or the poetry um, is embodied. John Dewey, the wonderful American philosopher that everyone should read, talks about exactly this. He calls it organic clicks. When people are reading literature or a poem that moves them, we have a tendency to separate mind and body in Western culture. But of course, reading a book is an embodied activity and um, the rhythms are crucial to the meaning and the sounds. The work into ourselves That's and right. recreating it A for book ourselves. is dead until it's read, right? And it's different in every reader, and every reader animates a text. Eliza, as this extract suggests, and as Charlotte has said too, the reader is a figure of hope because the reader is in the future, beyond the work of the novelist herself. <laughs> I, I wonder how you feel about your readers and series, how you think about readers. In our conversation now, you know, I'm realizing one of the things that occurs in literature is the reader um, becomes a witness to the reckoning that the author is having in this kind of intimate way but also in this kind of public way 
and that um, the reader is there to acknowledge the urgency and immediacy and embodiment of that living perspective as it's happening, but also to function um, as this space of time and to meet the author um, in a kind of way where they're both alive suddenly and suspended in the past, present, and future, which are all happening at the same time because you travel with the author, but then you're from the future, and then they are envisioning themselves in the future. And so I love the kind of Russian doll nest of distance and proportion and perspective and voice, the voice of the reader meeting the voice of the author and the author meeting the voice of himself or themselves as a past self and a future self. And I think that's quite fascinating and compelling um, that there is this intimacy that happens even when you return to a text repeatedly that you bring a different offering to yourself. And that novelist, living or dead, they're bringing um, something toward you to be recognized between the two of you. And that reciprocity or that invisibility is something quite powerful. And I think it's always often powerful, particularly in series work. That it makes me want to ask before we move to the next extract, Siri, because it seems to me we are often, I want to say, prisoned yeah. in an idea of chronological time. Obviously, we are every day. We move forward through our days and events happen. But I feel that your work recognizes but that's not necessarily how we experience time. Yeah, I mean, this is a great philosophical question that has never been answered, right? What is time? And there are all these uh, theories in physics, as, as, as people know, um, that there is no such thing. There's a space-time static reality. Um, which in uh, Memories of the Future I compare to a library. You know, the idea in physics is that you can go back and nothing will be changed. It's very strange. And to be humble in the face of temporal reality is important, but also to understand that we are continually taking from the past, reading, uh, we have neighbors from, you know, the ancients or from completely other cultures, and they can become intimate friends through the drama of reading. I am sometimes amazed that other people aren't amazed by this, right? And so I did want to acknowledge the reader. Every book is made between a text and a reader. It is in a live business. It is not dead. Yeah. And you know, it's it's important to recognize the temporal magic of reading, and uh, it often goes unnoticed. Our next reading is from *The Shaking Woman* or *A History of My Nerves*, first published in 2010. While speaking at a memorial event for her father, Siri tells the reader, she suffered a violent seizure from the neck down. In this wonderful, uncategorizable memoir, the author tracks her condition and its treatment 
but also its meaning and significance. She interrogates in depth the profound and too often overlooked mind-body connection. In this extract, we find Siri back in Minnesota at the moment of her affliction, recalling her childhood memories and considering what might have overtaken her body and her mind and soul. The first time I shook, I was standing on home ground. It wasn't only that my father had taught for many years at the college. As a child, I had lived on that campus because my professor father had a second job as head resident of a men's dormitory. That old building has since been torn down, but I remember its murky hallways, its smells, the elevator with its red door, the soda pop machine glowing on the floor below us, and the button on it for Royal Crown Cola. I remember the fat kind janitor Bud with his dusty gray pants, the forbidden upper floors where my sister Liv and I ventured a couple of times. I remember the view from the window in our apartment where I stood one Easter and cried. On that day of hats and gloves and light spring dresses, convention dictated warm and sunny, but what I saw through the window was snow. I remember when I learned to ride a bicycle on that same ground one spring and the feeling I had when my father let go of the bike and I pedaled off alone, weaving a little, but joyous the moment I understood I had been released and was still upright. I remember the power plant where my father took me and live through the billowing white smoke and the blast of heat and the roar of machinery into a small room near the back of the building where a man made ice cream and gave us samples for free. I remember lying over the grates outside the library and studying the candy wrappers and cigarette butts and various kinds of debris that had fallen down there and how absorbing it was just to look at those things. We moved outside town before I entered the third grade but aside from a few fragments from my third and fourth years, my autobiographical memory from five through nine is largely fixed on that campus. Places have power. Did standing there on that familiar ground unleash the reality of death for me, the presence of an unspeakable it? After all, I live in New York and didn't see my father on a daily basis. In New York, it was ordinary that he should be missing from my life. Was I thrown into a subliminal realization that his absence was permanent, irrevocable, without being consciously aware of the turn taken inside me? Did the faces of people I knew from my childhood hurl me back to an earlier self? Did the shuddering have something to do with occupying my father's place? quite literally standing in a place I felt belonged to him. Was the sight of that green lawn outside Old Main where my father once had his office, the image of which is scratched into my memory because I walked there again and again, not only as a child, but as a girl, and then as a young woman. 
when I was a student, but it wasn't the vision of the place that started the convulsion. It was the act of speaking. It began with the first word and ended with the last. Was it connected to a memory? Thank you so much, Liza. What does it mean, Siri, <laughs> yes. to make yourself the object of your yeah. own story? It's called The Shaking Woman or A History of My Nerves. So The Shaking Woman is the alien third-person object, and A History of My Nerves acknowledges the fact that it, the shaking woman, and I, I'm the shaking woman. And I didn't know it while I was writing, but the arc of the book is from the third person feeling of being possessed by an alien power to recognizing that I am the shaking woman. That's the last moment. I did not know I was going to write that. Um, did you know the title at the outset? Yes, I think I, I had the title and I knew that it was going to be an open-ended investigation. But I did some writing uh, in the process. So I would write after I had seen um, a specialist of some kind uh, and record it, which was, you know, it, there, there are real funny parts in this book. Uh, and I think that combination of the intimate and the personal and withdrawing quite far away and talking about the nature of memory, um, telling neurological stories, uh, and was a kind of freedom. Writing the book, I think, actually had a therapeutic value that I didn't know about while I was writing it. How interesting. Yeah. Because the, the very telling of it, not only as a personal story, right? Not only as, um, you know, could it, this be about my father? What happened to me? What was going on? Um, but through all many other possible explanations taken from different disciplines. I thought of it as a funnel, that you keep turning around the same problem. And the fact that I had already been you know, studying neuroscience and, and psychiatry and knew, had many friends in those fields, none of whom could <laughs> diagnose this problem. Uh, and then I heard, after I finished the book, from many people who wrote to me, actually, who had shaking disorders of one ki kind or another that were undiagnosed. Um, and it turns out there is a whole world of, <laughs> of shaking out there without a name. Charlotte, what do you think about the mind-body connection when you read The Shaking Woman? which you were talking about earlier, um, sort of how does it make you think about your own relationship to your own physical self and the world? What I find uh, very interesting in, in The Shaking Woman is the fact that it multiplies different perspectives, but also uh, different 
styles of writing as well, and also the fact that at some moments it's like a philosophical inquiry and at other times it's like a love letter to psychoanalysis. You can also feel it's a memoir. It's, it's that diversity that's very interesting, but also the fact that the mystery is, is not solved. And we've all experienced moments where that connection between body and mind just is very disturbing. You know, if you experience a placebo effect, if you have a phantom pain that disappears suddenly. But sometimes we're terrified of these symptoms and, and it's something we'll avoid doing the research unless it really handicaps you very much. Or some people will try and avoid the situation where these symptoms can happen. But I find that when that happens, it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's sometimes it, you can feel very fragile, but it's also a way of exploring yourself that's quite unique because through a physical symptom, you can reconnect body and mind, but with no real clear answer. You can't really, and, the, and we were talking earlier about the fascination today for neurosciences and how we have that illusion that they'll explain and give a clear pattern of that connection and it just, there's, it doesn't work. Everyone talks about this distinction, right? It's so conventionalized, but of course, no one can have a mind without having a brain. We know that. So of course, the material reality of the body is absolutely essential to producing what we think of as mind. The reason that you can't reduce mind to the brain or to some other part of the body is because it's within the context of a culture, other people. And what we think of as psychology, which includes the whole history of that particular human organism, right? So I wrote a long essay called The Delusions of Certainty in which I asked people at, you know, dinner parties, nicely, you know, <laughs> what do you think the mind is? Some people got quite upset. And I, and I said, no, I said, there's no answer. There's no answer. I'm just saying, do you think, for example, that the mind is the same as a brain? Or do you think it's something else? And you realize this is a philosophical difficulty that people take for granted. No one really thinks that there's a mind floating above them. Above them. I mean, even Descartes, he had to find the pineal gland to glue them together. Um, and, but this Cartesian division has haunted science for, it's still haunting science. Uh, that's why we have these computational ideas of the computational mind right, that the mind is symbolic, and then there's meat, right, biological meat or machinery, silicon. Unless you're talking to someone who's really been thinking about the history of the mind-body problem, it is not out there in the general culture. People just assume there's a mind and then there's a body. A body. But how can that be? Eliza, you're you have a collection called Seeing the Body, which also considers the 
intimacies of the physical and how our embodied selves collide with, absorb the world. So how does your own work make you reflect on the shaking woman? Well, I think I'm hearing a connection right away of this divisiveness of like mind and body. And um, when my mother died, I realized memories are mortal, that they, they have a mortality. And I no longer have access to her memories. And in the dying of her actual body, some of my own memories of who she was and how she carried her body and, and what her history was, which was also linked to my history, were also put to rest in a way and were very unresolved. And so people can get so polarized in this idea, well, the heart, you know, the heart is in the mind, it's in the liver, it's everywhere. We have to have the heart and the mind. And I, I think when sometimes that happens, it allows people some maneuvering away from things that they don't dare to really examine because they can say, oh, that's the heart. But you also have to have a mind. And um, I think in my own work, I, I never uh, divorce the two. The instinct and intuition is uh, as necessary as the intelligence. However, that intelligence is received through the body or through the culture or, or different things. Um, for me, they're not to be kind of perforated. In my work, you know, I try to think of spirituality or the soul. Well, I mean, it's through the entire body because you, you won't have the mind without the body. And so I'm just finding so much resonance with Suri and Charlotte and what you were talking about with kind of exploring different psychoses and narratives and how, you know, you make these narratives of your body. Others have those narratives for you. Others will try to project memories or cultural histories or generational things or all kinds of strangeness on you. And you already have your own strangeness. Um, and so it becomes this kind of uh, astonishing and bewildering and wondrous sight of perpetual fluency for me. And so in, in my book, to have a middle section of photographs, everyone said, oh, you have photographs and then you have poetry. And I say, no, it's the same thing. The photographs are the lyric, as is the body, as is the memory. And it means it will always change and you will never have the resolved memory. And if we all sat here and said, what did we remember tonight? We will all come away with a different account as we should which makes us all the more richer that we each have a perspective of what we were most attentive to, either by breathing together or by thinking later about what parts stuck inside of our, our meat, as Siri called it. Yeah, but you know, yeah. Eliza, it's so fascinating about your photographs. In Memories of the Future, there are 12 drawings. Yes. Not a single reviewer mentioned They're them. my drawings. Not one reviewer mentioned, because what are these? It doesn't fit into a conventional idea. So it's almost as if they can't they be seen. They don't exist. They're not, they're not seen. It is amazing. So we have to start thinking about the degree to which conventions are dictating what we perceive. Right. I think it's enormously influential. And when the mind doesn't, a certain kind of mind refuses to see the body, 
it then can allow itself and justify itself in the treatment of those particular cultural groups or economic groups because you don't see them as sharing the body that you have or the kind of mind you have. And now you have permission to colonize those bodies you know, institutionalize ways to discriminate and prejudice and render those bodies mute and broken and wounded and incapable of having any value. Um, or they, are, they become completely transactional because that's what your mind is saying because unless you make it, you know, this kind of word of imagine this was you, why do you need that kind of imagination to act with humanity towards someone else? who is sitting there with flesh and bones. It's just bewildering to me. This is a good, a good rhythm um, we're getting into um, for the final reading. Yes. <laughs> um, which is from the essay, What Does a Man Want? Such a good question. Um, in series collection of essays, Mothers, Fathers, and Others, published in 2021. In it, she raises the issues of the origins and implications of misogyny, woman-hating by another name, and draws attention to the ongoing destructive power of a patriarchal society. The irrational demand that fuels misogyny is like the double image found on a coin. On one side is the perfect, caring, sacrificing, loving, natural mother, a being who does not and has never existed. Flip her over and you find her evil twin the rejecting, selfish, unnatural mother who seeks power. The irony is that mothers are already powerful, not, alwe not always, but most often, the source of food and succor in infancy. The fact that there are men who mother has had little effect on the idea that mothering is female. The idea remains stubborn. The absence of mothering of one kind or another means peril. And that scary, potentially abandoning mother must be punished. She is the source of male and female moral outrage. Human beings, all human beings, are caring and rejecting, kind and cruel, generous and selfish, admittedly to varying degrees. But ambivalence is a feature of much of our intimate emotional lives. A woman doesn't have to be a mother to be punished. In fact, being childless can be a synonym for selfish. All women are expected to act on this cultural imperative, the absurd demand that I, the woman, exist only for you, the eternal man-child, to soothe, placate, feed, hold, ad um, admire, and adore you. And if I do not perform this part to your full satisfaction, I am a spoiled, wicked, heartless bitch. A witch. The oaths and punches and kicks that come my way are well deserved. When my niece was three, she said to my sister, her mother, you know what's funny, mom? No, said my sister. Sometimes I love you so, so much. And other times I hate you. All intimate relations are complex mixtures of emotion, of love and hate, but patriarchal structures in the West have enforced a prolonged infantile fantasy in many men, especially those at the top of the heap, or those at the top of the particular heap, that women, like the mythical Eve, 
were made for them. The idea that they were once inside a woman and that a woman's body was instrumental in making them has to be suppressed in mythical cultural ideas, which bleed into what is supposed to be stripped of all myth, parts of science. And if male heterosexual desire for women enters the picture, the need to embrace the mixed angel demon creates a poisonous emotional stew. When gender subversion, racism, class, or other factors are added to the patriarchal stew, it becomes all the more deadly. And the people we call women, a diverse lot to be sure, may also become ingredients in the concoction to protect themselves from punishment, to align themselves with men or their status on the societal ladder. Don't rock the boat, stand by your man, or to placate themselves with a delusion that they are, by nature, kinder, gentler, sweeter beings. Thank you. I'm going to start with you, um, Charlotte, because I know this passage from Siri's work spoke to you particularly. How does it fit into your thinking about misogyny and specifically about the way the mother and the mothering body is viewed in wider society? Well, I just loved the title of the essay, What Does a Man Want? And I just, you know, immediately was very excited to read it because no one really understands. We talk a lot about, you know, misogyny, but in a way it's always underestimated somehow. It's, it's so widely spread and it concerns every culture, every continent, every um, social condition. And it's, it's, I find, still underestimated every day. But what's interesting in that passage is that we think that misogyny is within a system of values, of ideas, that if we deconstruct that, then you know we can rebuild a more equal society. But and we come back to the body-mind connection yeah. because the simple fact that no one reflects on that idea that we all come, no matter what is our relationship with our mother, if we've been abandoned or not, if we had a loving mother or a, not a caring mother, we all came to this world because a female body uh, accepted us or somehow um, we had to go through that. And in, in a way, you know, we never think that, you know, it, it is related to a bodily experience, yeah. meaning that that is something we cannot erase and there's no technology yet that can replace, you know. There are uh, no artificial uteruses and they're not, they're not on the horizon. Yeah. And the fact that we forget that and that it's, it's something in our memory uh, that's, and also that, that is very symbolic, that, you know, if you have a, a, a difficult maybe childhood or, or difficult things happening to you, somehow, you know, the relationship with the maternal body is always extremely complex and that and it's not just a question that are you a feminist or are you you know it's the relationship to that nurturing body yeah. that that is you know still very passionate and powerful and we don't question that enough this is a vast 
yes, question that we could huge, go on. Yes. Um, yeah. but, but I'm going to also I'm going to raise it um, toward as we come towards the end yeah. of our discussion. Yeah. What is your best hope, Siri, for pulling ourselves out of that patriarchal stew? I'm very interested in this because I think it's important to address gestation and birth, the reproductive body, how this is involved in what we think of as misogyny, how the body itself is identified with feminine and female processes, and the mind, the intellect, is identified with masculinity. This is an old business. Um, in you know the symposium, Plato taught everybody's pregnant, but there's two different kinds of pregnancy, the natural pregnancy of the female, and then there's the male philosopher's birth of ideas, and that is superior. We are still trading on the pregnancy of the symposium, and we have to, I think, talk about it. There is a fear often of speaking about biological processes and gestation um, because it's identifying, you know, let's say, uh, that sometimes feminists can be nervous about talking about that because biology has been an enemy of feminism. Women are reduced to their reproductive uh, capacities. But I don't think that's right. I think it's biology is complicated, dynamic, and has to be uh, regarded not as some static reality, right, but something moving and fluid that goes on until we die, and frankly, even afterwards, because there are processes of decay that are active. Um, scramble the damn categories. I really think we have to do that. And if you question them over and over again, not in some feeble way. I mean, you, you see this in media all the time. You know, uh, we hate binaries or whatever it is. No, let's think through and keep talking about what these categorical divisions that we make mean. Eliza, I believe you wrote your first novel, Promise, in part as a tribute to your late mother. And you have said that it is a love letter to my mother and the motherless ache I sensed in myself. Can you talk a little bit about what the idea of the mother means to you? Yes. I mean, I, I think at the language level, I had to empty out the word mother in a way. And what did it mean um, to be unmothered? to carry the memories I had of my mother after her death, and to think about the real complicated energy um, when she was alive and the ways that, you know, coming up, I'm thinking of coming up as a, a writer in New York of the different women in my life and how we would mother ourselves or how we would kind of detach the habits and routines and disciplines of our mothers and claim a different kind of territory for ourselves. And so, you know, mother will always be this kind of very primal, universal word. And yet we have to breathe um, new, uh, a kind of new 
uh, energy into it, a new, uh, you know, space for it to really live. And in the space of kind of thinking about, you know, this feeling of, of motherlessness, um, it also means like, what are daughters and sons? What are the men are, what are mothers and mothers? What are mothers and wives? So then all of this becomes very shaky terrain. And I found for myself, um, working on a novel, you know, what, when you're young, how much you rely on the mother, you know, um, how much you rely on the father, but really the mother's body. And as I'm getting older, the places I meet my mother is in my own body oftentimes. And I don't have children, but I meet my mother and I have relationships where I, re I, I see, oh, I'm like the maternal person, oh my God, um, in the dynamic. And um, I also wanna say, you know, I am, I am now my own father too, because I want to bring those energies together. So if I am misogynistic toward myself, where did I learn that from? And now I'm bringing that toward my feminine energy. But how can I really hold those two things plus other categories of queerness in my body? And so I think um, as we're all saying that this space of, of motherhood um, is the seams have, have split for a long, long time and um, there will be a better justice and imagination for mothers soon come. And it's already shifting, but you know, the 1950s mother, and, and I also wanted to think about the body, as you said, you know, when I think about black women and their mortality rate of their pregnancies, when you start to bring in um, enslaved people and motherhood, that was not that was not even uh, the foundation there was no foundation because it was chattel it was property so when you think of motherhood in that way which i often you know have to go there i'm i'm coming from a very different sense of that word and what it meant and how fiercely um, defensive my mother was of these are my children um, being possessive to the point of almost being destructive because the intergenerational um, history and collective memory of not being able to keep the children you've made out of your body. Yeah. And do you think of Beloved and Toni Morrison where I will actually kill these children, yeah. right? That's a different kind of mother that, oh, that was awful, but what was the context of that? Where did the mind have to be to say, I would rather have these children dead than have them be property and endure what I have. So I come very suspiciously toward the word mother, even toward myself, and yet it is a glorious word. And it is um, a way, you know, sometimes um, as an artist, I wouldn't ever say like, oh, I, I'm the mother of my book or anything like that, but uh, <laughs> that would be too scary to do. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a space that we all arrive to, each of us, no matter what kind of mother we, we imagine and the mother we had and the mother we let go of and the mother we reinvent or that we choose elsewhere in our lives it seems very, very um, alive space to me. Speaking of mothers and daughters, yes. as it happens, we are going to welcome now another artist to the stage to sing for us. Please join us, Sophie Oster who is going to sing Page <laughs> Hey.
girlfriend, where'd you go? Remember all the things you used to know about me? Used to know about me, oh Who'd you got married to? It's just like you, not to mention the day I hope you got swept away, oh Hey, your girlfriend, is it really the end? Remember that time when we made amends? We wrote our names in the sidewalk, in the rain It's you and me forever Forever or never Blame me for your blackout nights How was that? said forever blame me for your blackout nights how was there to make it right forever you said forever hey girlfriend i never knew you want to do all the things i've aspired to it's room enough for two Hey girlfriend, come around Rock solid steady with my feet back on the ground Ooh, my feet are on the ground Hey girlfriend, I've been feeling the shame You walked away without a thing to say And you only go when you're falling down And you lose your crown you said forever, forever or never Blame me for your blackout nights How was there to make it right? Forever, you said forever Blame me for your blackout nights How was there to make it right? Forever said forever and yes it is true that I'm fine without you but every now and then I get a little bit lost without you you said forever forever or never Thank you so much, Sophie. And I'd love just the, the two of you to talk briefly about what that song means to you and 
how you sort of think about it. So uh, Hey Girlfriend was written about a old friend of mine that um, we grew up together, we did everything together. It was the so-called BFF. <laughs> and, um, you know, we drifted apart as we got older. And it was one of those relationships that I kind of held on to for a really long time. I, I wanted that relationship. And then I realized that it was really over. And I feel like maybe culturally we don't talk enough about how heartbreaking it is to lose a uh, really close friend of the same sex. It's platonic, it's mm. not sexual, but it's, it's something that is really, really deep. And so I wanted to write about that kind of, um, how painful losing a friend like that can be. Mm. So that was the, yeah. the thing. That was the song. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a shyness about passionate relations uh, between women, among women. And it wasn't always the case. You know, in the 19th century, the idea of girls having crushes on one another, you know, whether they were, uh, the, you know, there's an erotic component to all, <laughs> I think, human relations of any interest. Um, and these, again, categorical divisions uh, have made you know, heterosexual love affairs the big topic. And uh, the other relations we have, for example, with our parents um, or with people of the same sex love relations, in the 20th century and into the 21st have been ignored. And to me, this connects to the little section we're going to come to next, because we asked Siri as part of this conversation to choose a passage from a writer who inspired her. So it is a passage from Audre Lorde, and we'll hear it, and then we'll hear why you chose it. The principal horror of any system that defines the good in terms of profit rather than human need, or which defines it to the exclusion of the psychic and emotional components of that need, the principal horror of such a system is that it robs our work of its erotic value, its erotic power, and life appeal and fulfillment. Yeah, I, that's... Um... Um, from Audre Lorde's essay on the uses of the erotic, and she expands the definition, you know, way out of bed. Huh? It's about the passionate realities of work and relations with other people. I, I love her repetitions there. This is quite uh, uh, something that she does um, in her prose, but also in some of the poems, where uh, the uh, emotional uh, energy of repetition is used. You know, she repeats that, the principal horror. And she's right. And in the essay, she also talks about these passionate attachments to both work and among women have been shoved to the side in the culture. Um, and she mentions there, of course, uh, capitalism, um, that 
things that are just, it's the machinery for profit and not for human, satisfying human needs, uh, that is awful. And we have a tendency, again, to ignore that reality. Uh, she is um, a courageous writer. And uh, reading her, I've been rereading her, actually, uh, her essays particularly, but also some of the poems. And I think she's rightly becoming quite famous at this cultural moment. Thank you, Siri. We have a few closing questions for you before we open up to our audience. Um, selfishly, perhaps, since we're here in New York, where you live and where I grew up, I want to ask you about the meaning of the city for you. There's a, a wonderful passage that I love at the opening of Memories of the Future, where your protagonist, S.H., finds refuge in the New York Public Library on 42nd Street in its grand reading room fit for kings. It's a place sort of of the city and outside the city all at once. It's so beautifully described. What does New York mean to you? Well, you know, the New York that I moved to in 1978 and the New York that we're sitting in now, they're not the same place. Uh, I was a graduate student at Columbia and that neighborhood was completely different. Part of Memories of the Future Art is describing these <laughs> two realities. Um, the bourgeois current reality versus the city that had just been through a financial crisis and was crumbling and much more dangerous uh, than it is now. And I wanted to avoid nostalgia. What it seems to me is always true of New York is that it's always changing. And it's more like an organic <laughs> creature than a city like Paris that I love. Um, but it does not stand still. Uh, neighborhoods are always going up or down, usually up these days, uh, in various parts that frantically up. Uh, but that chaotic reality is exciting. It was exciting then, and it's exciting now. It's exciting to be back yeah. and to be back on this panel. We always ask our esteemed guests, what advice would you give to a young artist starting on her creative journey? Yeah, I said this earlier today, but when I was 15, my mother gave me the most beautiful advice, and I keep thinking about it. She said, don't do anything you don't really want to do. And I think for every artist, this is very good advice. And like so many things you've mentioned today, seems simple but is not simple. No, and you see all those negatives in there. Don't do anything you don't really want to do. It's complicated. And I know she was speaking to me as a fellow moral being. It was not uh, advice for hedonism. It was saying, do not be coerced 
I was 15, remember, do not be coerced into what you will regret as a moral being or as a sexual being. I, I think about it a lot. Is this what I really want to do? And don't do anything that I don't really want to do. Uh, I think this is good advice for any human being, but for artists in particular, it has resonance because you don't want to betray um, the emotional truth that will make your work something of value. Finally, of course, I'm going to ask a question about style. Oh, right. <laughs> how do you think of your own style and how important is it to you? Well, um, you know, clothes or uh, maybe style is a more general word for that is about reflective self-consciousness. It is how we imagine ourselves to look to other people and embodying something about what we think or imagine that to be. Uh, and it's drawing on the language of the culture. Uh, it's always been uh, class-bound. And I was thinking how interesting it is that beginning in the 19th century, uh, male clothing became so boring and women had so much latitude. That says a lot. I looked at the Met people who went to the Met last night <laughs> and I wanted to look at what the men were wearing and I had this feeling of hope <laughs> that there that that's expanding, genuinely expanding, and it's not just the tuxedo. I have a tuxedo, by the way, that I Me too. wear. <laughs> I wear when you need a uniform, um, but uniforms for men were and have always been about power. And the notion of masculinity as serious and women as the frivolous other. Um, and I think we should change that because masculinity needs to play just as much as femininity. Scramble the categories. Scramble the categories. I am now going to give our thanks. So I'm going to start um, by thanking Charlotte Kasaraki, Chanel Ambassador, and the driving force between these wonderful Rendezvous Literaire, the whole amazing Chanel team who I love working with more than anything, don't tell anyone else. Um, and with special thanks to Chanel's president, Bruno Pavslovsky, here with us today, Virginie Viard, Chanel's creative director, Eliza, thank you for your beautiful readings. Thank you, Sophie. It goes without saying. Thank you. Siri, more applause. <laughs>